Andrew Gray Chapman was a 32-year-old from Columbus, Ohio. He was a father and worked for the state government. On December 6, 2006, Andy called his mother, urgently requesting that she come pick something up. However, his mother was sick and couldn't make it. When she showed up two days later, Andy was gone. He was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. For a guy who has moved approximately 10 times in his life, you'd think I'd be used to it. But I'm not. I still hate it. The cleaning up, the boxing, the carrying, the pushing, the renting of a U-Haul, all of it. It's just bad. The only good thing about moving is it's a chance to throw stuff out and make an assessment on what should be taken to goodwill and what you should keep. What saved me on this last move from Madeira Beach to Clearwater Beach is that my personal trainer and now very good friend, Blake, volunteered to help. And he was a huge help. And Blake, if you're listening, thank you. But moving is a fact of life. Hardly anybody lives in the same house or apartment for an entire lifetime. Especially these days where many people are moving from the northern United States to the southern U.S. Hey, I'm one of those people. We learn to accept there is going to be a big change, and we do the best with it that we can. And for me, even though I hate moving, it's largely been a good thing for me. Well, in the case of Andy Chapman, he and his roommates had to move. The house they were renting had been foreclosed on, and the owner was kicking them out. The roommates ended up in a new place within a few days. But Andy? No one is sure where he went. Yes, there were alleged sightings of him but by people whose credibility isn't the greatest. So 13 years later, we the public are left to figure out if there was a moving violation. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Good's website, charlieproject.org. Andy Chapman had a good job with the state of Ohio. It was so good that by the time he was 32 years old, he had $25,000 in his retirement account. Likewise, he was married and had a son. Everything was great, but Andy had a drug habit, causing his wife to take their son and leave. Andy lost his job and for a time lived out of his car. A longtime friend took Andy in and tried to give him a place to stay, but then Andy was asked to leave due to his continuing addiction. And in the month before his disappearance, there were signs Andy was getting worse, and he was living with people with the same habits. So at some point in November 2006, Andy and the roommates got word that the house they were living in was being turned back over to the bank due to foreclosure. However, Andy didn't tell anyone of this fact. Yet on approximately December 6th, 2006, he called his mother who lived 90 minutes away, that she needed to come to his place and pick something up. Andy was not clear what that something was. However, his mother, Judy, was sick at the time and couldn't make it. Judy managed to get to Andy's place on December 8th, but she hadn't talked to him since his phone call. When Judy got there, the house was empty. A neighbor told her the occupants cleared out a couple days before. Andy was never seen again. 
The issue with this case is that there is circumstantial evidence by way of paperwork for a car Andy had recently bought that Andy was alive and in the Columbus area for at least a month after he moved out of that house. The questions remain. Number one, how did Andy's car get in the possession of Andy's ex-roommate's brother? Number two, what happened to the rest of the $25,000 Andy had after he bought his car in November? And number three, is it a coincidence, part of a plan, or a lie that Andy said he was going to Florida, the same place his landlord moved after the foreclosure? Andy's family is open to all possibilities regarding his disappearance, especially due to his drug addiction and they've kept very accurate records so far and continue to find new avenues of inquiry. The guest for this episode is Andy's sister, Amy Chapman. Unfound News Unfound has a meetup coming up tomorrow, August 24th in Houston, Texas, at the Black Walnut Cafe. Cherie, one of my assistants, is the organizer. I hope any of you in the area will show up. I'm sure Cherie would love to meet all of you. Next, you can anticipate that next weekend I will be out of communication for most of the time. I have a disc golf tournament in Orlando, so I'll be getting my butt kicked for all three days, including Labor Day. Or maybe not. We'll just have to see. And finally, the first volume of Season 2 will be published within the next couple days. Please be looking for it on Amazon. The cases in it will be Kent Jacobs, Aaron Gilbert, Tammy Leppert, Crystal Morrison, Chris Turner, Linda K. Carroll, and Nikki McCown. Where you can find Unfound. Unfound supports accounts on Podomatic, iTunes, Stitcher, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, and Facebook. On Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, please join us on YouTube for the Unfound live show. Contribute to Unfound at patreon.com forward slash unfoundpodcast. You can also contribute to PayPal, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. That is also the email address. Merchandise, the books at amazon.com in both ebook and print form. Do not forget the reviews. Shirts at unfound-podcast.myshopify.com. Cards at makeplaincards.com forward slash sell forward slash unfoundpodcast. And please mention unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the sister of Andy Chapman, Amy Chapman. Amy, welcome to Unfound. Thank you so much, Ed. Let's start here, as we always do on Unfound. Let's talk a little bit about Andy, the person. Uh, you are his sister. Uh, what was he like? Your family, brothers and sisters. What can you tell us about the Chapman household? Um, the Andy and I, um, grew up in Reynoldsburg, Ohio, and our parents separated when we were probably in our early teens. Um, Andy stayed with my dad in Reynoldsburg and, um, I moved with my mom about an hour away. Um, and my mom had two other children from a second marriage, um, Nate and Mark. So total, I had three brothers. Um, we were pretty close growing up. We got together quite a bit, and even though we were an hour apart, uh, we still did a lot of family functions together, and um, Andy graduated um, from Eastland Career Center in Reynoldsburg, I believe it was in 1993, 
um, who he got a, a second degree in drafting um, and went right into the workforce. Um, he worked wow. at, at K, he worked at Kmart. He um, worked several other jobs and um, and then he got a job with the um, city of Columbus down at the clerk of courts department. Um, would would you real... say that Would you say that you two uh, were close as brother and sister? How close are you, by the way, in age? We are two years apart. Two years. Um, yes. Okay. Yes. We were extremely close. Um, I think it happened more when the older that we got. Um, Andy would come up because I was living in Mount Vernon. I had my own apartment. He would come up and visit. Um, we were always doing stuff together. We enjoyed going to concerts. Um, we enjoyed barbecues. So, you know, I would go to, and um, I also lived in Columbus um, right after I left, excuse me, right after I graduated high school. I stayed in Columbus for about a year and a half before I came back to Mount Vernon. Um, so, yeah, we, we went and saw Metallica together. Wow, <laughs> we cool. To, yeah, we went and, uh, you know, we we just, we, we enjoyed going out. I know he enjoyed Hookahville concerts, and um, which is like a little festival up here. Um, so we did a lot of things together. Um, okay. And he got the job at the at the Cork of Courts, and I was living up in Mount Vernon, and I decided that I uh, wanted to go to college. And so he very willingly said, well, come stay with me, you know, come stay with me and, and get either I won't charge anything, get yourself situated, start wow. college. He had a little uh, one-bedroom apartment in Columbus, so I moved in down there and uh, started at Columbus State, and um I didn't have a car, so he helped me get where I needed to go, and and uh, he was still working at the the clerk of courts, um, which was a Monday through Friday eight to five job, and um, I started at Columbus State. Uh, shortly thereafter, he met um, his wife, his soon to be wife Rochelle, and um, they started dating. Um, and Andy was just he was obsessed with her. She just <laughs> was everything that he. I remember he would just hold her face. And be like, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. I just love you so much. <laughs> wow. I got I got to see a lot of this because, like I said, we were you know I was living with Andy. It was a one bedroom apartment, you know. So when they were dating, we would watch movies together and that type of thing. And um, so I'd probably say it was about nine months to a year. Um, they decided to move in together. And what year was this? What year uh, do you think? I'm gonna say '98. Wow. Okay. So over 20 years ago. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. About 98 is when um, he moved. They got apartment together. And then I stayed at that apartment. Um, I graduated from college. Um, meanwhile, they got married. Um, Andy and Rochelle got married. I want to say it was uh, 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a wonderful event with family, everybody. She also had a son from a previous um, marriage and Andy was just a wonderful father to RJ. RJ was about nine ten, um, so the family dynamics were kind of cool because Andy and I were in our mid twenties, and then my two younger brothers, well, they're ten years younger than us. So um, Nate and Mark, right now they're thirty and, and thirty one, mm-hmm. um, and we're in our forties. Well, back then RJ, you know, his stepson was about 10, which was the age of Nate and Mark. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. they were, they always played together. And so it was kind of neat how the family died, you know, how we were separated by age, but then the older we got, you know, it kind of, it kind of merged, you know, the, we yeah. had the younger kids that could play together. And, um, 
So yeah. shortly after that, um, if I may ask, out. when you were living with him together, uh, how did you? I guess you two got along well. How long did that last? That you were staying at his place while going to school? I would say about nine months. About nine months before he moved out, and he only moved out because him and Rochelle uh, decided to live together. Sure. So. Yeah, it was it was great. Like I said, sure. you know, when I started talking about wanting to go to college, he said, "Well, just come stay with me, you know, rent free, and and mm-hmm. we'll get you set up." And, um, you know, I had a little mattress in the the living room, and we put a <laughs> we uh, stapled a sheet up so that that way I had just a tiny little bit of privacy. And um, so yeah, it was it was a great relationship. We had a we had a, a nice time. He it sounds like uh, your traditional twenty somethings living together. Putting sheets yeah. up for privacy and things yeah. that 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 reminds me of back at that time. Sure. Yeah. What and, would you say? Was, what would you say? Andy's personality was like outgoing, introverted. What would you say? Very outgoing. Very very outgoing. Um, I've got you know pictures that I just added to his website of when he was at um, a weekend concert festival with his friends. And, um, you know, when I lived with him, he was always doing things. He was always going out with his, you know, his bud, his, he had a really good friend, Daryl, and then a couple of guys that he worked with. Um, they rode to work together every day. And um, it was just very, very outgoing, very enjoyed doing things. And how was his marriage? They got married, married, like you said, in the year 2000. Her name is Rochelle? Correct. Correct. Yes. Okay. And we were, uh, of course, maybe she took his last name, but that's, we're just going to leave it at her first name. But um, how was the marriage once they got uh, married married in 2000? Of course, he disappeared in 2006, but um, how did it go for them? It it went really good in the beginning. They both were very hard workers. Rochelle, um, as long as I've known her, she's always had two jobs. Um, So they both kind of were were go-getters. And within a year of marriage, um, they had purchased their first home together in Columbus. Um, bought caught you know a new car got situated. Um, Rochelle was working uh, full time as well. She had a very good job, and then um, and then they found out that they were pregnant with with Andrew, um, my nephew, their son. Um, so that was the first grandchild on this side of the family. It was the most amazing news ever <laughs> that we were <laughs> that they were pregnant. Um, I bet it was okay. wonderful, absolutely wonderful news. And Andy was just—he was beyond himself. This was, you know, he really had a hard time with the divorce. My mom and I get my mom and my dad getting divorced. I think he suffered the most from it. And so when he obtained what he believed was, you know, the wife and the and the home and the you know the child, and I believe it really settled him. You know that mm-hmm. this he he had. You know, he enjoyed doing the the mundane things, you know, at the home, like mowing the lawn. And, and, you know, I remember he would, he had a chair in the garage and he'd sit in the garage and they lived in a court, you know, and he'd just sit out there and watch the neighborhood. And, you know, he just, he enjoyed. He uh, sounds like your regular typical guy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Sitting out in his garage with a beer, looking (laughs) out, see what's going on in the neighborhood. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. And um, so, yeah, it was really good. And, um. So pregnancy went really good with Rochelle um, in October of 2002. Um, Drew was born, and um, like I, I, it just it changed everybody. Um, just seeing him as a dad, he 
was obsessed with this child. Nobody else could give him a bath. Like Andy gave him a bath every night. He wanted everything to do with him. We, I just remember, and you know, he just, he, he wouldn't leave the, he wouldn't leave Drew alone. Like that mm-hmm. was his, it was his baby. And it was just amazing to see. Um, now Drew was born in October and November, the next month, we were all together for Thanksgiving. Um, year? Fan, uh, this was in 2002. Okay. So Drew was born in October. Um, and so the next month was Thanksgiving and we had all gotten together. Uh, Rochelle's family, um, had a Thanksgiving. Well, that's the day that I decided to take a pregnancy test. Cause I just felt like something was going on. Lo and behold, mm. I was pregnant <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> a month, a month after Drew was born. So I ran, you know, ran to the Thanksgiving and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. And, and I just remember being, I mean, I was being so excited. And and then I just realized that these boys were going to be so close in age. You know, the, the two yeah. cousins were going to be so, so close in age. Um, and, uh, so the first couple, you know, the first year of Drew's life, I just remember we were always together. We were always planning family dinners. We would go to Easton. We would go over to my dad's house and, you know, have barbecues. Uh, we'd take the kids to the zoo. Um, I mean, it just the whole, the whole time, you know, Drew was young. We'd, I just remember doing lots and lots of stuff with him. Now, in July of 03 is when my son was born. Um, Andy was at the hospital, Rochelle was at the hospital, everybody was at the hospital. And so now we had these two cousins that were what, 10 mm. months apart. Mm. Um, I, I joke with my son now and I tell him, thank, thank aunt Rochelle, because she's the reason you're alive. I was a new mom. I had no idea what I was doing. So Ed, every time anything went with my son, I called Rochelle and Andy. Mm-hmm. I called with free I advice, accept. free mother yes. advice. She because <laughs> since she was just there a couple years before you were, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. So let's so, let's talk let's talk about this. These things are are going on, but at some point though, um, you know, it seems Andy did develop an addiction. When did you start? to suspect that these things are going so well, but my understanding is this had yeah. been going on even before he got married. Can you talk about it a little bit? We're not going to hammer it too hard. We're not going to hit it too hard, but since no, he did disappear fine. and we, you know, and we need to talk about addictions and drugs on this program, you know, yeah. since we talk about disappearances, when was the first time that you thought, Hmm, I think something's going on. The first time I felt something was going on was about 2004 um, things didn't seem to be going okay with him and Rochelle. Um, he was upset quite a bit. Um, and we just kind of had a feeling that, that things were just awry. They were having money issues. Um, Rochelle had to get us a, a third job. Andy was working a second job. So things just didn't seem like, like, okay, what's going on over here? Um, mm-hmm. Well, come to find out that several years before 2004, Andy was in a car accident. Um, and You didn't know that? Was, well, it was a minor car accident. So I didn't okay. think, it, okay. you know, like it wasn't anything where we had to rush to the hospital or, you know, so it wasn't, okay. it wasn't anything intense. Okay. Um, so, but he had this, this fender bender. And, um, the doctor prescribed him opioids. I don't know Mm. what he prescribed him, but that's what he prescribed for his back pain. Um, 
and again, I didn't know all this. I found this this out within the past couple of years talking to his, wow. his, his you know his ex wife Rochelle and just kind of finding out what happened in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so and so that's what she said caused the majority of like their financial problems. You know, was this was this addiction? So about 2004. Um, I believe is when he, I don't have the dates in front of me. I'm waiting for my computer, but he, um, I believe that's when the, the addiction was too much for Rochelle. Um, and she asked him to leave the home. And are are they, we then to understand then if she had to get a third job and he got a second job, of course, he's working for the state of Ohio. I'm sure he's making decent money. You know, and we're going to talk about yeah. his money situation here in a little bit, but he seemed to be making decent money, but they had to take on these additional jobs because this is how much uh, his addiction was taking up of their finances? I believe so, and, and I also believe that in the beginning of the marriage that they took on so much so quickly, you know, mm-hmm. i.e. the home, you know, two new cars, she had, you know, a son um, I don't believe that his father was, you know, contributing. Right. So I think that, wow. you know, just too much came too soon. So they took on too much um, debt, I guess you might say, just to put it all into one un- under one umbrella, too much debt uh, yes. uh, in their marriage when they got started out. Correct. Okay. Correct. And uh, then his addiction just kind of contributed to that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Now, to see, and I remember being, I moved, let's see, my son was born in 2003. um, And so, you know, when we had these two infants, we were always together. And so when I I think about him back then, I don't, I guess I just can't honestly say that I felt that, you know, it was an issue because mm-hmm. seeing him with Drew and seeing him with my son, I didn't see any difference, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think that maybe Rochelle saw a lot more being with him, you know, 24-7. And, you know, when you only see somebody, you know, a couple hours a week, you know, they can yeah. they can be kind of who, you know, you want them to be. Yeah. Um so I just, and I, I know that Rochelle was struggling a lot with the things that were going on. My mom was helping him. My dad was helping him out financially. Um, so. But the, but the word addiction and opioid addict is what he became. Uh, never came up in those conversations. Jimmy, let me, allow me just throw out a year, like 2002, 2003. That wasn't part of the conversation ever. No. No, okay. no, because 2003 was when my son was born, and that's when, uh, you know, Drew was less than a year old, and mm-hmm. we were always together. So, it, no, it never, mm-hmm. it, it, he didn't seem any different. Was so he, I, I don't, was he doctor shopping? I mean, how was he getting his hands on, of course, he was given opioids, but an addiction starts, and then people have to start lying and doing other things to get their hands on more and more of this stuff. Did uh, was he doctor shopping? Um, do you know what he was doing to get his hands on this stuff? I do now. Um, and what mm-hmm. uh, we found, what we found out was that he was going to different doctors, and that was in um, 2005, 2006. Okay. Um, because that is when he, um, in 2005, um, he came and stayed with me. Um, he lived with me for probably about three months. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then we, that's when I knew the addiction was really bad because I was seeing it firsthand. Um, Did you talk to him about it? Yeah. Yeah. And I talked to my, my family about it. Um, and then we put him into, he, he went into rehab. Um, he went into, I want to say Talbot Hall OSU, which is a local rehab up here, um, was in there for a couple of months, um, got out, we got him, um, into an apartment, which was right next door to me. Um, and then I believe he just got right back into it and he was evicted from that apartment. And that was in 2000, uh, excuse me, 2006 when he was evicted from that apartment. And what was going on with his job working with for the state? He was fired and I don't know the exact date. Um, what happened was the addiction started to affect his work and they knew at work something was going on. Um, and so he was ultimately fired from that job. He had, when he was staying with me, he had a car, um, that was repossessed. Um, and then I want to say, I'm trying to find the date here of when he was fired from, uh, from his county job, his job with the state. Okay. Rochelle filed for divorce in 2005. Um, he lost his job, we think, in May of 2006 is when we think wow. that he lost his job. So like seven, um, eight months before he disappeared, something like that. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, now, in 2005, um, he – and, and this was the height of what happened between him and Rochelle. He was arrested for possession of drugs. Um, and that was in April, 2005. And that's when the whole family knew it was, it was more than this was something major. Yeah. Yeah. This is not going away, uh, today. This is something that might be around for a while. Correct. Okay. Correct. And being Um, that you two were too, uh, so close and being that you two were very close in age, um, can you talk about those discussions that you're having did Andy realize that he was an addict I know that he went to rehab and everything but he relapsed I mean how troubled was he you know and of course losing his job etc I'm guessing his self-esteem was taking quite a hit as well yeah and I I think that that's what what increased it was that he was using and and then he got you know arrested and, you know, that's very, in our family, that's very shameful. I, you know, yeah. it just, it's very shameful. So, you know, he got arrested and then, you know, then his wife, you know, is filing for divorce. And so I think it just escalated everything, you know, that, okay, I've got this addiction, but I was able to maintain this life that I wanted. Well, now I've lost my job. I've lost my car. I've lost my wife. And, and then now I can't even see my son without supervision. You know, my mom would, would go and get Andrew, uh, Drew so that you know that they could see each other so I think that that propelled the the addiction because he lost everything that he'd wanted his whole life so you know when he went into rehab I, I believe that he really wanted to get it together he left a, a note on my car it was written on the back of a french fry container and it says you know Amy I've lost everything I've lost my son I've lost my family. I, I can't live like this anymore. Um, I want to get. I want to, you know, get get better. This is what it says. It says, "Dear Amy, I hope by the time you read this, you will know that your stupid older brother makes really stupid decisions. 
I have continued to do so that it has put me at risk that I may not see my son and lose my family. It has also ruined my relationship with you and my mom, dad, and the rest of my family. I realize now what I have done has been selfish and really has jeopardized my life. Please try to understand that I need you to help me in my struggle with this. Yesterday, I made some calls to some professionals that can start to help me get my life back. I am ready to get back to reality. Please help me to get up tomorrow or as soon as you read this, as I have been living in my car for the past four nights. It has not been fun at all. If you get this before 7 a.m., please wake me up. I want to get better. Love your brother, Andrew. P.S. I have disposed of all of my drugs and such. I've thrown them away. When so, was the, When did you get this note? This was in 2006. He was staying with me that mm-hmm. summer, and this this um, was this is what he gave me that summer. Mm-hmm. And so he, um, like I said, he went into rehab, um, and then we helped him get an apartment that was right next door to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just so even after that when, note, he just went back to what he was doing. Correct. Okay. So he had that moment of clarity where he knew things were bad, but like most addicts, uh, they relapse. Even after those those moments of clarity, they just go back to what they were doing. Yes. Okay. And had th- was this continuing along the line of what we would call prescription drugs, or had he transferred over into heroin like so many opioid addict- addicts do? prescription drugs and that and that kind of goes back to what you asked me before about the doctor shopping was Mm -hmm. um, my mom said that um, when she uh, towards the fall of 2006 um, my mom was the only one that really had contact with Andy Um, I in the summer of 2006 Andy came to my son's birthday party Um, I knew he was high and I did not. And after that, I did not talk to him. Um, I right. tried to do the tough love. You know, you got to get yourself together. You can't be doing this. So the summer of 2006, that was the last time I had contact with him. My mom, the fall of 2006, was the one that was taking him to his doctor's appointments. And, and she said that he said that he was, you know, telling these doctors lies to get the pills and that he felt really bad for that. And he wanted to, you know, apologize to them for that. So, you know, you have, it just, when you hear things like this, like that's my brother, you know, he, he, you know, he would steal something from somebody, but then feel so guilty. He would immediately go back and then try to offer them something else. Does that make sense? Like he just, Mm -hmm. it it just, that's just who he was. You know, the thing is though, I mean, we hear a lot about this, in the case the cover of course the drug cases the missing persons cases that unfound covers where drugs are involved and we hear a lot about this people trying to go straight and can't you know yeah. they are at their core they are good people they are not evil people but uh they are addicts and uh they have a tough time getting out of um the spiral that they're in for sure yes for sure yes, exactly i just want to ask you um something that you said. So in the summer of 2006 was the last time you had any contact with him. Um, not long after, I guess you got that note from him and you found out that he was relapsing that, uh, you had no contact with him from the summer of 2006 until he disappeared. 
Correct. In December. Correct. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Yes. All right. So let's move on to something else that went on in the summer of 2006 to kind of put this all together is that he did end up living with a friend of his, uh, Jeremy. And what went on there? Um, And this is what I found out in the previous, in this past couple of years from speaking to Jeremy. Um, Jeremy worked at the clerk of courts with Andy. And so they were friends down, you know, through work. Um, Jeremy was married and had a couple of kids. Um, Jeremy, Andy was evicted from an apartment and um, Jeremy offered for Andy to come stay there. Um, I asked Jeremy about how long he was there. He said for a couple of months. And, um, I, you know, I asked him what happened. And, and so what Jeremy said was that, um, because of the drug abuse and, and he knew that it was wrong and he didn't want to do it around Jeremy's children. And so, um, Andy left shortly after that. Um, Jeremy said that he went and stayed with, um, Jen and Doug and, um, he's not really sure how he met, how Andy met Jen and Doug. Um, but he believes that they were also, users and mm-hmm. uh, you know and so that's that's where he left so that was the summer of 2006 okay is, is and when jeremy said okay and once again though there weren't too many people that knew that andy went and lived with jeremy in fact you like you said you just found out until recently within the last Correct. few years of course this disappearance 13 years old so when i say recently i mean within the last couple of years which is still considerable time uh since then yeah. Okay. So over it took you over ten years to find out where Andy was living after he got evicted from that apartment. And this was of course not long after, you know, of course this note and, and everything else. Uh was do you think that your mother Judy, who was a I also got to speak to uh her and I will talk about my conversation with her after this interview, was she aware that Andy went and lived with Jeremy? Do you know? I believe so, but I I don't know. I would ha- I would have okay. to ask her. I don't, I don't know if she did or not. I know that she kept contact with him, so I mm-hmm. would assume that she did know. Because even okay. even with all of this going on, you know, in his life and, and being evicted and you know living in his car, he still had contact with my mom regularly. So I would okay. assume so. All right, and you mentioned Jen and Doug, and we're not going to use their last names. Uh, but we will talk about them uh, in a moment um, because nobody – it seemed not too many people knew about them either, although I, I believe your mother did because we talked about them. But there was um, just a few things that that went on before he disappeared in December. Let's talk about uh, this money that – and I realize that we're maybe going to go a little bit of out of order here, but – he did have some money that he had saved uh, when he worked for the state. Why don't you talk about that a little bit and what, what happened okay. there? Definitely. Um, when he was employed with the city, it was about 10 years that he worked there. He paid into um, a private retirement. Um, it's called OPERS. And uh, so he had 20 some thousand dollars, $25,000 in that account. Um, now in order to take that money out, you have to prove a hardship. You have to you have to apply to get that money out. You have to prove that there's a reason. And um, so he, for whatever whatever reason he submitted, he was approved and they dispersed his um, retirement to him. Um, I believe it was about $25,000 wow. is what was dispersed to him. Um, 
you know, we don't know the exact date that he got that money um, mm-hmm. or where that money went. We are still mm-hmm. trying to track um, and get records from OPERS um, as well as bank account records. Um, but we know that he did get that money. Now, that was also something that Jeremy um, put in his email that even in that summer of 2006, mm-hmm. Andy was talking about getting that money out and waiting on it. So he he talked about it to pretty much everybody. Everybody knew that he was waiting from the way that Jeremy put in his email. Everybody knew that Andy was waiting on this twenty some thousand dollars. Um, so so um, he was an addict, but he was still had the um, control not to dip into these funds. It seems like he had been an addict for a few years, uh, maybe starting 2004, 2003. And it still wasn't until 2006 where he thought about getting that money. I, I My correct. perception is that most addicts, if they knew they had $25,000 sitting somewhere, they would go get it immediately. Right. But for him, <laughs> but for him, he, I, it sounds to me, my perception is that he held out for as long as he could, then got that money. And I'm guessing the state of Ohio did not know that they were giving this money out, even though it's his to somebody who was an addict. I'm, I'm guessing they didn't know that at all. Okay. Yeah, so correct. he, all right, so he was talking about this during the summer of 2006, but he didn't get that money until when? October, November. Uh, we we're not we're not sure of the exact date um, okay. of of when he got it out. We okay. our, our detective has has been working on it, and mm-hmm. we yeah, so we don't okay. know the exact date. Okay, we're going to talk about we're going to come back to the money uh, situation uh, a little later. Let's also now talk about. Um, something that happened with uh, the Pep Boys and a bounce check. When did this happen? How much was it for? What can you tell the listeners about this? What we know about this is that at, at, towards this, at the end of 2006, Andy was still using his old address for all of his paperwork. Um, he didn't have a secure address, so he was still having all of his things sent to Rochelle's house. And that's how we found out about the OPERS, that's how we found out about the car, which we'll get into. That's how we found mm-hmm. out about all these documents. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like um, in September of 06, he wrote, Andy wrote a check to Pet Boys um, for the amount of $1,106. Um, we don't know if he had a car at that time. We're mm-hmm. still trying to find that out okay. um, because the last I knew, his car was repossessed. Um, so okay. we're not really sure why he wrote a check to Pet Boys um, for mm-hmm. that amount. Okay. And what happened with that check? Uh, it bounced. And it's now been sent to collections. And that's how we found out about it was we, uh, his, wife, his ex-wife, Rochelle, received a notice of the collections. Okay. So all this paperwork was going to her at her address, even though we're going to talk about Jen and Doug here in a second, even though – uh, Andy was living at this new place. He wasn't. U- it doesn't seem like he was using this new place for any correspondence with anybody. He didn't contact any of these people. Maybe even the state of Ohio to say that, hey, my address is now where Jen and Doug are. He never did Correct. that. Okay. No, nope, he never- still was using. And and he okay. hadn't lived. He hadn't lived at that Rochelle's home mm-hmm. in close to a year. Okay. And so a year later, he's still giving that address when he, hmm. you know, he, he opened a new bank account um, in the summer of 06, key, or excuse me, November of 06, Key Bank. He opened a bank account. He used his old address of over a year ago. Um, so he still was using that address. Um, 
and he knew that Rochelle was still there and that mm-hmm. she would get the mail and probably hold on to it. And, so, and how often yeah. were those two seeing each other? Do you even know, even despite, of course, his addiction, was he keeping up with seeing his son? How much uh, correspondence were those two having during the summer into the fall of 2006? Do you even know? Um, I know a little bit. My mom knows more because she was the one that was facilitating the visitations. Um, she would be the one that would pick up Andy, um, you know, and then go get Drew and then they would go, you know, get lunch or something. She was more facilitating that in the beginning. Um, Rochelle was very scared to just let Andy, you know, take Drew. Of course. Um, which is, you know, totally understandable. Totally. And, you know, it, it broke Andy's heart that he had, you know, that this is where his life was now, you know, everything that he'd ever Mm -hmm. wanted, the marriage, the child, you know, the good job. And then, you know, like I, like I read that, that note from him, you know, it broke his heart that he had now has to have visitation, you know, for his own child. Um, I don't think that Andy and Rochelle were communicating that much. I believe that my mom was doing more, more of the facilitating at that time. I guess what I'm asking is, is it possible that he was giving that address because he knew that he was going to be going over there once in a while anyway? And say there there was no reason to fill up any uh, change of address forms like we all do like when we move because right. he knew that once in a while he would be going over there to get his son. And if there was anything that came there for him, he could just get it then. You think that's possible? You know what? I don't, I don't know. I, okay. I, I, that would be a question for mom. I don't, okay. I do not know if he ever went over there. I, and my understanding with, with Andy is that I just believe that, you know, that's a safe, secure address. You know, he mm-hmm. had been evicted twice in, you know, in, in 06. He was evicted from, you know, his first apartment in May of 06. Then he was evicted from his second apartment in September of 06. So he had been evicted twice that year. So I think he just, in his mind, you okay. know, that's Rochelle. She's there. It's a, it's a, it's a secure address to use. And maybe also he was living with Jen and Doug and he maybe thought, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be living there anyway. Yeah. So about the time I fill out all these change of address forms, I'm going to be moving again, and then we're going to have to start this all over. So that may have been in his mind as well. Definitely. Um, was there a, yes. was there a warrant out for his arrest regarding this bounce check at the time of his um, disappearance? Not for the bounce check, but for his um, arrest for the drug possession in April of '05. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy's court date was um, November of '06. So almost a year and a half later was his court date. Um, he he had a certified letter sent to Rochelle's home, and Rochelle. Okay, so maybe this this might answer your question before. Mm-hmm. He had a certified letter sent to Rochelle. Rochelle gave it to mom, and mom was going to go give it to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I think that that she did facilitate everything. Okay, um, but that was his court date. Um, and he failed to appear. So that is when he had a warrant out. Now, per the detective, it's not a nationwide warrant. So, you know, if he was picked up in, you know, mm-hmm. Arkansas or Kentucky yeah. or wherever, it wouldn't yeah. pull up. It's just it's just a, a warrant here. So that's the only warrant that he has. He does not have a warrant for the uh, the bad check. Okay, so he fa- this failure to appear happened before he disappeared. So he was out there somewhere. He just didn't go. In contrast Correct. to a court date being maybe in February of 2007 and he didn't go, that might be more understandable. But this one, other one, he just essentially blew it off. Correct. Okay.
All right, let's talk about Jen and Doug, and just we're just going to talk about them in general terms. And I realize that there weren't a lot of people that who knew about them. I know your mother did, and and we talked a, about them at least a little bit. In my conversation uh, with her, but to this day, do you have any idea how Andy met Jen and Doug? And once again, we are not using their last names. I do not. The only the only lead that I have of how they might have met was through Jeremy, the gentleman that he was staying with in that mm-hmm. summer. Um, Jeremy's wife had a cousin. Okay, no, excuse me. J- uh, Jeremy's cousin, Jamie. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that Jamie introduced Andy to and, and himself to, Jug- to D- uh, Doug and Jen. So that's okay. how I believe that they they got connected was through Jeremy's cousin. Okay. And so then when it, it seems then that when Jeremy said, you know, Andy, you got to leave, you know, you have this addiction. I don't want this in my house. I don't want this around my kids. It seems then Andy knew about Jen and Doug and went and lived with them. Correct. It seems sometime in late, let's just say August 2006. And that seemingly where Andy stayed, he wasn't living in his car. He was staying there from then until the, his disappearance slash they moved out Correct. In, in December. That's what it seems. That's the best you can tell as of August 2019. Yes, that is correct. Okay. And I know that your mother said that um, that she met them but not did not have a lot of interaction with them. But I think that her – uh, insight was that uh, they were kind of uh, into the same stuff that Andy was, but it doesn't sound to me like um, she knew them that well. Did you personally know about Jen and Doug at all? I know that you were not keeping in contact with them for reasons. Um, did you know anything about them? When did you first hear about them? I didn't know anything about them. Um, I mm-hmm. first heard about them. Oh, my mom had talked about them, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I would ask, you know, how's he doing and what's going on. And, um, but I didn't have any, any direct contact with him since um, July of mm-hmm. 06. Right. So I, I didn't know that he, you know, got evicted again. I didn't know that he, you know, I didn't have that direct contact with him. Um, I found out about Doug and Jen um, through my mom. Um, piecing together the case is really how all these details have kind of popped up. Um, okay. It's just piecing everything together. Okay. This is going to be important a little later because we are going to talk about Jeremy uh, again here later. But let's move up now to just a few days um, before uh, he disappeared. And the accepted date is December 8th, although – it could be December 7th. Or, um, it's not December 6th, but somewhere in those two days. But December 8th uh, is the day that we're using. Um, he did end up getting that money. We've mentioned that money before, that $25,000. And what did he do with it? What he did with that is he purchased a car in December of 06, uh, Ford Explorer. Um, I believe it was about $12,000 and he paid outright for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason we know this is because he had the title. The original title was mailed to um, his ex-wife's house, which she still has that title. Hmm. Um, So he he purchased that car. Um, In December, beginning of December, Andy called my mom 
Um, my mom lived an hour away. Andy was in Columbus. My mom lived mm-hmm. up in Mount Vernon. Um, Andy called my mom and asked her to come down and pick up something. Um, he, my mom was really sick, so she wasn't able to get down there. Um, from what she tells me, the conversation, he seemed really rushed. You know, I really need you to come pick this up. Um, please, you know, I've got something for you. I've got to get this to you. Um, again, my mom was really sick, and she was like, Andy, I'll be, you know, I'll be down on, on Monday to you know, check on you to, to pick that up. Now, my mom said that – now, my mom worked in Columbus, literally um, – a street over from where Andy was staying at that time in the Hilltop area. She worked over at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. So she, you know, she drove down there every day. So when she went back to work, she said that she went over to the apartment that he was staying at in the Hilltop area and that nobody was there. And so um, she peeked in the windows and everything was gone. She said a neighbor came out she asked the neighbor and the neighbor said, you know, I think something to the effect of, you know, they, they moved out, they're gone. Okay. Okay. So, so he buys the car. Um, and then he calls your mother. And once again, I got to talk to Judy and we went over this call uh, as much detail as we could. And, uh, she talked about then going over there on December 8th and, and getting there. Um, she also explained to me that she actually saw Andy on his birthday, which was sometime in later November. They got together cool. for dinner, and she explained to me that that uh, dinner and what went on there. Um, but I think the noteworthy thing about all of this is that at no time during the dinner for his birthday or the call on December 4th did he ever mention anything about moving. Is that the way you understand it? Correct. All right. So I never mentioned anything about any of that. So if you could, in general, what do you understand uh, once, uh, about your mother going over there that day uh, once again? Okay. Um, what she says that when she went over there, um, and this is in the Hilltop area, which is a very, very, very rough area of Columbus, um, that mm-hmm. she went over there and um, I believe she knocked on the door. She tried to, you know, see if anybody was there. Um, nobody answered. She peeked in. There wasn't anything in the house. Everything was completely cleaned out. And I believe a neighbor, she had a conversation with one of the neighbors that, that they, that they were gone, that they had moved out. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is the extent of what I know happened that day. Okay. When did you find out that she went over there and nobody was there? Did she automatically call you? Um, how did you find out? I believe that she did talk to me about it um, because those two. See, I'm just trying to remember, and and I honestly, I just, I don't, I don't remember if she called me. I know that she talked to my younger brother Mark quite a bit about what was going on at that time, um, mm-hmm. but I, I don't, I don't believe that she did talk to me that day. Okay. When do you remember finding out that Andy wasn't there? Well, she started to talk about filing a missing persons report in December. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the beginning, when this, when he, when he was not at that apartment, it just felt like he, you know, personally for me, it just felt, it didn't feel like he was missing. It felt like he just, mm-hmm was evicted and he, you know, he's moving on to the the next and, 
and that's just kind of the way that it felt for me. I didn't really feel like anything was, you know, awry. You know, mm-hmm. he's 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 an addict, and he's you know he's on to the next place. And totally understandable. Um, and that's just kind of the way that I felt about it at that time. And I was, and, and I had a lot of anger towards him, you know, because I, I just seeing what you know his his wife had gone, you know, his son, and, and so I had a lot of anger towards him at that time. And so I, I don't I don't know if I specifically talked to mom about it or not. Okay, but she did let you know that. She went over to. She went over there because yeah. he requested that she come over, even though he couldn't come. She couldn't come over on the day that he wanted, and I'm sure at some point in December 2006, she did tell you. You know, when I went over that day, you know, he wasn't there. I'm sure yeah. some, that something like that did happen. Do you know during this time? Once again, I know that you were not having any interaction with him. Do you know if your mother, or maybe some of your other siblings, anybody tried to call him? when he wasn't there maybe not that day but any of those days after december december 10th december 15th december 20th or maybe his ex-wife tried to call him anybody try to call I him i don't know if, if his ex-wife did but i know that mom did and mm-hmm. i believe that's what triggered her to feel like something was awry um mm-hmm. my younger brother was the one who went with her to file the missing persons report mm-hmm. um and so this is still kind of information that I'm trying to get out of my mom of those beginning times because mm-hmm. it's so long ago. It is, yes. You know, my mom's my mom's 72. You know, some mm-hmm. of those details of just unfortunately, yes. you know, we we can't recall them. And we talked um, about that. So yeah, we talked about that. I, I, yeah. I think my mom and my younger brother really felt like something was awry, and that's why they filed the missing persons. I personally just felt like he was out using and. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was keeping to himself is, is kind of how I felt. Okay. At that point, we now know what the person's name is now, but at that time in December into January of 2007, once again, December 2006, January 2007, did anybody know who the landlord was of this house? Did anybody try to contact it? It is a woman. Try to contact her uh, to see maybe if – uh, Doug, Jen, and Andy had given any forwarding addresses. Did anybody know her information? No, we didn't. And my mom did a lot of uh, research on the home and went to the Franklin County Auditor and pulled up records. Um, and she was focused on a different name. Um, she didn't have her dates straight. And so she was mm-hmm. focusing on what happened was the the – they were living at this place. Apparently it was foreclosed on the bank bought it. And then a gentleman bought it off the bank. Well, for years, my mom was focusing on the gentleman that bought it off the bank. And then Mm. when we finally got the timeline straight, then we realized per the auditor's page, no, it wasn't that gentleman that was, that had ownership. It was two people back. And that's the, the landlord that we now know. We don't know their relationship. We don't know if she was just a landlord um, mm. you know, or if she was a family friend or a relative that said, Hey, you guys can stay here. Um, mm. knowing that the property was going to be foreclosed on, um, we're still in the process of, of, of getting a hold of her to find out that information. And this is a woman who, uh, whose first name is Raquel. Is this the Correct. one that you and I've talked about? And I've actually sent yes. you some information regarding her. Yes. Okay. And we're not going to use her last name either, but her first name is R-A-C-Q-U-E-L. And we're going to talk about her. Um, maybe a little later. All right. So, um, she goes over there. He's not there. 
People try to call him. He's not picking up. We're still not sure going back to the time. Did the phone ring and ring and ring? Or did it go right to voicemail? Uh, your mother can't really remember that, which is uh, totally understandable. The most important part is he's not picking up his phone, and I think that uh, he usually would pick up his phone. And so this continues on. We'll get back to the car in a second. But finally, in sometime in January, uh, the missing persons report was found. Who filed it, and what happened from there regarding the police? Um, my mom and my younger brother, Mark, they went to um, the police station, and they filed the missing persons report, and that was in um, January of 07. Um, at that time, my mom was the only person that was really having contact with Andy. I wasn't having contact. My father wasn't having contact, um, you know, so... Um, my mom was the one that went and filed the missing persons report. Um, now with the police and the missing persons unit, that is, you know, that's a whole big topic because my mom filed that police report in uh, Mm -hmm. 2007. Um, and we, they basically told her, okay, you know, we take all the information, we'll look into it. If, you know, we find anything, find him, we'll get back with you. Mm -hmm. So we're just kind of, okay, all right, you know, they're taking care of it. Police are taking care of it. Um, My mom would periodically call and find out what was going on. um, And then come to find out later, years, years later, we found out that the case was closed. Um, We don't know the exact date because they can't give that out to us, but, but Andy's missing persons case was closed because they considered him a fleeing felon because he didn't show for his court and not a missing person. Right. Um, our family was never notified of this, so we just believe that, you know, the police were, were looking for him. Um, and um, This happens so this, a lot. I don't know if you realize this, Amy, but this happens quite a bit where uh, police find out that uh, a missing person, man or woman, has warrants out, warrants out for their arrest, and the police automatically default to, well, this person's on the run, and so they're not a missing person. That happens a lot. It happens a lot. In fact, I know we just covered another case recently. The the um, the case escapes my mind right at the second where we had a conversation about that exact topic. So it's and not, and, that, and that makes sense. But you know, let the family know. Yeah, you know, well, I agree. The, we're we're yeah, we're just kind of thinking. Okay, the, you know, the police are doing okay. stuff, and you know, we it, it, we're just. You know, we didn't know what else to do at that time. I mean, it was, you know, what else? There was no social media. There was no nothing. And in 2006, um, we had another really big missing persons case, Brian Schaefer. Yeah. And so that literally got all the news coverage. Nothing ever was on the news about Andy, ever. Mm -hmm. Um, So during the time, I would say the time frame of 2008 to 2011, um, when we believed that the, the police were doing things on the case and we had all these, you know, the case was closed and then it was reopened and then that detective retired. So then the case sat idle before being um, reassigned. And then we did get a detective um, who finally started to do things on the missing persons case in 2012. Um, oh, that detective. after. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That detective finally collected DNA and dental records um, so that that way we could submit those to name us. Um, he finally had a case in May of 2012 on name us. Um, the detective did a DNA search 
um, for Andy in October of 2012. So we finally got a detective that, and, and with, yeah, like you said, this was what, six years, five, six years later. Yes. We finally got a detective that was willing to do things. Um, I mean, honestly, we just as a family didn't know what to do. I mean, what do you, there's no handbook. There's no, nothing. you know, you're, you're, there's true. nothing. Yes. There's nothing. It's all, all true. The cops are taking care of it. So I guess what we're saying is that not only did they not try to, uh, they dismissed Andy as being missing. They didn't go out and try to track down even the landlord to see what she had to say about them moving out. The police didn't try to track down Doug and Jen. I'm guessing there weren't missing persons reports filed out for them because uh, they were out there, but they the police didn't go try to track them down and talk to them, didn't try to find Andy's vehicle, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, essentially did nothing. Nothing. Absolutely okay. nothing. Okay. And, and and of course, we didn't know that. You did not know that at the time, we right? We believe that that's, you know, the cops are taking care of it. You know, that that's what you do. You turn it over to the cops and, you know, they'll okay. let us know if they find anything out. Correct. Okay. So uh, we have Raquel, who was not contacted. We have Jen and Doug, who were not contacted because they did eventually... Um, move out, but let's let's just talk about them right now. I know that your mother knew about them, but you didn't find out about them. Uh, my impression is till later. Um, were they eventually found? And what did they have to say? Um, if you know about what went on, roughly December sixth, December seventh, December eighth. Um, yes, and I know this through our detective. Our detective mm-hmm. in 2005, excuse me, 2015, okay. um, is when they were finally interviewed. In 2015 okay. is when they okay. is when they were finally interviewed. And per the detective, she said speaking to them um, was like talking to Ozzy Osbourne. She couldn't get any direct information out of them, and what they told her was that um, when they left the apartment, Andy lived in his car. So when they were when they left the, the apartment in December of 06, mm-hmm. that Andy was staying in his car. And then um, in January of 07, Andy was having car troubles with this 12,000 car that $12,000 car that he just bought a month later. He was okay. having car troubles. Okay. And um, so... Uh, Doug's brother, Paul, worked on cars. Now, we don't know if he has a shop or if he just did it out of his own garage. Um, and so Andy took the, call, the car over to Doug's brother, Paul, to mm-hmm. get it worked on. And what they told the detective was that Andy was with a female. They said that they were running to Florida really fast and that they would be back and that they would pick up the car once they got it fixed. And that is what Though, that is what Doug and Paul told the detective. That, and, and that is a story. That is the story that is on the record. I'm not saying anybody necessarily believes that, but that is the story that is on the record to this day, August 22nd, 2019. That is correct, and that okay. is what the detective, the detective Perry, okay. told us that that they had said when she interviewed them. Okay. If I and I just need to ask these questions. I'm not saying you necessarily have to have the answers, but I need to ask them anyway. In this conversation with J- Jen and Doug, if this uh, detective passed us along to you, did Jen and Doug ever say where they went after they moved out of this house? And we should explain that w- the reason we believe believe they all had to move out is because the house got foreclosed on, 
did Jen and Doug ever explain where they went after they moved out of that house in December 2006? Not to my knowledge, and that is something that I have asked all the past three detectives that we've had. Mm-hmm. Did they say where they went? And mm-hmm. I don't get a response from the detective. So, okay. so I do not know. I don't know if, if when they were, you know, if there's three, you know, there's Andy, Jen and Doug all living together. So when they mm-hmm. were, you know, had to leave, where did Jen and Doug go? You know, they say mm-hmm. Andy stayed in his car. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what they said is that Andy stayed in his car. I do not know where, where Doug and, and Jen went. Okay. That seems kind of cold to me. They live together from August until December. And then Jen and Doug move out and seemingly probably get a roof over their heads. And then they allow Andy just live in his car. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem a little cold. (laughs) It does seem a little cold being that they probably became friends uh, while they were living together. And so I guess they were comfortable. If they're going to say that, I guess they were comfortable with uh, Andy just living in his car. Right. Okay. All right. And do you know the last time that Jen and Doug uh, were spoken to regarding any of this? The only time that I know for sure was the time that I just told you about when Detective Perry spoke to them Mm -hmm. in 2015. Um, The new detective that we have now, Detective Bogan Schwartz, Mm -hmm. she wants to re-interview them. And I've asked her several times if she has, Mm -hmm. um, but she has not responded. So I don't know if she has re-interviewed them or not. Okay. And we'll come back to Jen and Doug here in a moment. now. We mentioned Jeremy, he, and it is seemingly his cousin who put um, Andy in touch with Jen and Doug, and that's how they ended up all living together. Uh, I have to admit from my standpoint, it is certainly convenient that it seems like Jen and Doug had the same sort of um, maybe addiction issues that Andy did, and they all happened to three meet up together through Jeremy, even though Jeremy did not want Andy in his own house for those same reasons. That's something that stands out to me. But Jeremy, um, what was his attitude toward uh, Andy going missing? In fact, he didn't even know. Correct. He didn't even know. Um, I started a Facebook page um, for for Andy. I believe I don't have the exact date. It's probably about four or five years ago. Um, I started a Facebook page for Andy, and um, that is when Jeremy contacted me through that Facebook page, um, and mm. and I and said, "Oh my gosh, you know, I didn't know this. You know, tell me." He emailed me and was and then basically just was an open book. Told me everything that was going on. I gave him the, the detective's information, Detective Perry. Um, September two thousand and six, Detective Perry said that she did talk to Jeremy. And she can't give much info as this is an ongoing investigation. Uh, Detective Perry stated that Jeremy knew Doug and Jen. He does not know how to get a hold of them. Nothing to go on. And so that was Mm -hmm. the email from the detective in 2006. I do have to ask. It seems to me, like you said, you brought up Brian Schaefer already, which, of course, is a disappearance that I'm sure all of my listeners know about. And, you know, I even know... Uh, somebody who's working on that case and and nothing but up there in Ohio. But Jeremy says that he didn't know about Andy being missing for nine years, even though I know that all of you are out there publicizing it and that it never occurred to you that one of his 
Andy's friends did not know. We were not publicizing it, Ed. Um, hmm. There was no, there was no okay. TV coverage. There was no TV coverage of Andrew's missing case, and until 2015. Mm-hmm. Wow. 2015 was the only time, the first and only time we got news coverage of Andy's disappearance. Now, the the area that he went missing in, the Hilltop area, we've been down there passing out flyers. Um, we mm-hmm. went to uh, some of the food pantries down there. Pat- so that was the only that was the only thing that we did as a family when he was missing. We, you know, was to pass mm-hmm. out flyers. So if Jeremy wasn't living in that area, he would have no idea, you know, that that Andy was missing. And I didn't start the Facebook page until two thousand. Okay, here it was, two thousand and fifteen, is when I started the Facebook page. Okay. So. Back then, you know, if you didn't see somebody every single day, you didn't know what they were doing, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of, you, you're, you're my age, so you know what it was like back then. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't, you couldn't log on and see what somebody was doing. Amy, I they wish, didn't... I wish I was your age again. I know how old you are. I wish I was your age again. We're not, we're kind of close, but not that close. Um, thank you for that. Um, yes, so I guess it's, I, I, I guess what you're saying is it is conceivable that Jeremy didn't know, but I'm also wondering, did he not think it was odd that he never had any contact with Andy again all those years? Agreed. Agreed. And so, but he did talk to the detective. And, okay. And so, and so what she said is, is, is that, you know, she can't give much information as it's an ongoing investigation. This was in 2016, um, and that there was nothing of value is what she said. Okay. By and, talking to him. Okay, and being that whether Jeremy or maybe this cousin of his knew Jen and Doug, um, I guess they haven't been able to give any information. Once again, by that time, it would have been nine years on. But of what happened to Jen and Doug after they moved out, maybe they didn't even know that they moved out. They weren't even aware of any of it. Right. I don't believe from what Jeremy has has, has said to me, I don't believe that he was that close mm-hmm. with with Doug and Jen. Okay. I, I believe it was just a, an acquaintance, and I, and I don't even think that they're Facebook friends nowadays. I, I don't think uh, they were that close okay. of acquaintance. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Let's move to back to Andy's vehicle, this Explorer, which I think is a major, in fact, even in my notes I, in here, I have it stated as the biggest part of this case because there are several weird things about it. I don't usually like to say things that way, but I think the listeners, it's going to be fairly obvious to them. So just to recap, Andy got this $25,000, a portion of that approximately half he used to buy this explorer that he had at the time that he disappeared in december of 2006 could you please now go through um of course when you buy a vehicle you get a title i know you've already talked about it but could you please do that again he buys this car what happens to the title okay he purchased the car and he paid he paid cash um and mm-hmm. so he got he he got the original title. Now the original title was sent to his ex-wife's house. Um, now he also got insurance through Safe Auto. Um, it shows the policy was effective December second. Um, so he uh, he got the car. Um, now what happened with the car was um, 
what what we have is that the title was issued December 14th um, and then of 2006. And then we also have that in January 5, excuse me, January 5th of 2007, close to a month later, the Andy registered the car. Okay. So um, if I could just and, jump in here for a moment, then it seems we're maybe that as of early 2007 that Andy wasn't missing. Somebody did, presumably him, did register the vehicle. Correct. Yes. Okay. And that and the, the date for the BMV is January 5th, 2007. Uh, now, I have asked the detective numerous times if they've been able to pull this registration to verify that, that Andy was the one who registered the vehicle. And um, again, I haven't gotten a response back from them. Um, okay. Now, the car had 30-day ta tags on them. They expired February 3rd, 2007. And so this is another part that we're trying to figure out is, you know, did he get 30-day tags at the dealership and then mm -hmm. another 30-day tags when he registered the car in January? Because if the 30-day tags expired 30 days from the time that he registered the car, mm -hmm. so we're still in the process of getting that. Um, now. Rochelle told me that in the beginning, when Andy first was filed as missing, she gave the original detective all of this information, okay. the, um, the safe auto policy, the title. So the detective knew that, that this was all happening. Um, now, what we have found out through the years is now in 2015, and this is, I'm skipping ahead, but this is important. Okay. So in 2015, when we had our first detective that was actually working on the case, she sends us an email and says, after all these years of searching, I finally found Andy's car. It doesn't look like anybody's up right now. I'm going to come back and check on it. So I'm like, what car? What car? What car is it? Wait, wait. So I called my mom. We're like, what is going on? What car? So this kind of tells you where, you know, how little we knew what was going on with Andy in the beginning because the detectives were taking care of it. I guess what I'm saying is now looking back at it now, did your mother, and this I don't think this is a question I asked her, but did your mother even know, did anybody even know that Andy bought a car except for his ex-wife Rochelle who got the title? You didn't know it. Did your mother even know it that he got this vehicle? I did, I did not know it. I, I don't know if my mom knew it. I don't know mm. if she knew at the time when he got it, but I mm. knew that she knew later on yeah. um, because Rochelle had turned in those documents. Um, okay. Because yeah, so I don't know if she knew that he did get this um, to get did get the car. Okay, because um, because what I'm thinking is that you of course know he's missing, but it sounds to me the way I'm thinking about it now, and I don't even know if I had this thought until now, is that. You knew he was missing, but you didn't know that his car was missing, too, because you might not have known about it. Correct. Okay. Exactly. We didn't know. We didn't know that, you know, the car. I didn't know about the car. So mm -hmm. I don't we, I just assume, you know, if you're now looking back at, at it, mm -hmm. it's like, OK, well, if you're gone, you know, you take your car with you. Um, that yeah. just, and so we didn't find out about him leaving the car with those people um, mm -hmm. until two, about 2015 is when we found wow. out about it. Um, and so what we've found out since then is that um, the car, what, what Doug, and, Doug and Paul say is that Andy left the car in January 07. 
he said the car wasn't working and that he was he was taking off with this female and that he would be back to fit, to pick up the car. Um, so Andy never came back. And so what happened was that they applied for um, Paul applied for an abandonment title. Hmm. Um, and that was in September of 07. So um, that uh, that original application was denied. I'm not sure why. We can't get the records. So then um, Paul and Doug, who are brothers, they had their mother, Diana, apply for a, the, the abandonment title. And she was approved. So that was in um, the summer of 07. Wow. Um, now, over these years, the title has been transferred numerous times. Um, there's tons of records of, of when mm. it was transferred. Um, it was transferred back and forth within this family numerous times. Um, it was tra- the title was transferred um, to uh, to Paul, and then it was transferred to a David who was a family friend who was going to purchase the car, but then he didn't come up with enough money. So that was transferred back. So over the years, I'm trying to find this sheet. Over the years, it was transferred one, two, three, four, five times. Mm -hmm. Now, from the time, and and this is all within the same family. Everybody that it's been transferred to is all within the same family. Um, Now, what we found out um, just recently is the actual mileage um, from the time that Andy purchased the car, it had, let me see, 71,000 miles on it. And that was in December 14th when the title was registered, mm-hmm. 71,000 miles. September of 07, when it was transferred as a, um abandonment, mm-hmm. it had 83,000 miles on it. Huh. So at uh, so for nine months, when they're claiming this family's claiming that the car was abandoned, eleven thousand miles was put on it. They were driving it. Uh, that's what I believe. That's that's what I believe. Well, they, uh, so, I guess what my reasoning is, they can't say if it was abandoned if Andy was the one driving it that whole time. Right. Right. Yeah, eleven thousand okay. miles in nine months. Eleven thousand okay. miles in nine months. So in 2007 is when they were able to get the title in their name because it was considered abandoned. Um, And then in 2008, it was put into Paul's wife's name, Brandy. Um, And then, like I said, in 2009, it was transferred over to that David gentleman who was going to purchase it. He Mm -hmm. didn't come up with the money. And then now it's back in Diana's name, and she's the mother of Paul and Doug. All right, and Doug is Andy's ex-roommate. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, once again, uh, Andy allegedly needed some work done. Doug's brother, Paul, works on vehicles. Andy allegedly dropped the vehicle off there and said he was going to Florida, and could could they fix it while he was gone? And what their story is, he never came back. And they had worked on the vehicle, and then it sat there for all that time, seemingly not, but... And then they have found they filed for an abandonment title, being that the car was on their property and he never came to get it. Correct. Even though it seems that they were driving it like their own vehicle for eight months 
putting, you know, 11,000, 12,000 miles on it. Correct. Yes. Okay. And that's another part, Ed. It's like this, you know, mm-hmm. all this happened in 2008, 2000. Okay. I'm looking at the, 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 the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, and 2011. That's every year that I just mentioned something happened with that title. So, why was that something that the detectives weren't looking up? If they knew that Andy was missing and he had this car and they could look and see, okay, there's mm-hmm. been activity on this title. You know, we didn't know about this until 2015. That's the first time I had, we laid eyes on the fact that this car was transferred this many times. Do you know if the detectives, once they did find that out, uh, have they questioned Doug and Paul a little bit more about all this? Only the time that we discussed when Detective Perry talked to them and she emailed me and said that there there's nothing to follow there. Excuse me? Can you repeat that again? Repeat um, that. Did, um, Detective Perry, our detective, did mm-hmm. interview them. And that was what I was saying when she said that, you know, that Andy left the car. They said that Andy left the car and she didn't believe that they had anything to do with with anything. There was no leads to follow with with those gentlemen, with with Doug and Doug and Paul, she didn't think it was odd that they drove somebody else's car for twelve thousand miles, a missing person's car for twelve thousand miles. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Our detective. Did that's not. what. That's what the detective said. Correct. All right. Real Inspector Clouseau there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um. And have they been asked about this again? Is it any detective who's a little more competent gone back to them and maybe been a little harder on them? about all of this that's our new detective our new detective is uh detective bogan schwartz and my mother and i have met with her um and we're Mm -hmm. also working with the ohio bci um Mm -hmm. and and so she is she said that she wanted to re-interview that family circle so Mm -hmm. you have doug and jen who were married that's who andy was living with and then you have doug's brother paul who was the one that was working on supposedly working on andy's car Paul's wife, Brandy, she had the title in her name a couple of times. So yes. this whole family circle um, is, is what she said that she wanted to re-interview. But at mm-hmm. this time, I do not know if she has been able to. Okay. And are we then to understand that Andy's Explorer is still being driven around the Columbus, Ohio area? Correct. Yes. And exactly. the title is now back into the title is now back into Doug and Paul's mom's name, Diana. Okay. And it's active. Okay. In these conversations that uh, at least the one that has been had with Paul and Doug and maybe Jen and Brandy, whoever else, have they ever offered up any reason that they think Andy didn't return to pick his vehicle up, to your knowledge? No. Okay. No. I have from from I have the detective's email the, of what she mm-hmm. sent me about their conversation, and this mm-hmm. is what she said. She said that per um, that Andy left the car to get fixed. Andy was with a blonde female. Andy Andy was introduced to Paul by Doug. They are brothers, and Andy was hanging out with Doug. Mm-hmm. Andy left car to get fixed. Stated he was going to Florida real quick, and he would be back to pick it up. Talked about renting a car. They stated Andy was living in his vehicle. He would crash at homes. He said that Andy drove his vehicle rough and needed to get it fixed. I asked Lisa if these, excuse me, Detective Perry, if these guys seem suspicious. 
She stated they were hard to talk to, like talking to Ozzy Osbourne. Detective Perry stated she asked them what did they do? What would they do if they saw someone ODing? Detective Perry said that they freaked out and said that was hardcore. That's not anything that they had ever seen before. Mm -hmm. Detective Perry also stated that these guys moved, and I quote, way, way, way out of town to get clean and out of the drug scene. Mm -hmm. Doug and Paul. Okay. Detective Perry also stated in the email, um, did they move so no one would um, would come knocking on their door asking about someone missing? Least ultimately, Detective Perry did not think these guys had anything to do with Andy missing, and that was in 2016, and that was per our detective from the missing persons. Okay, that interview that they that this uh, Detective Perry had with them once again was in 2016. Correct. All right, so ten years after Andy disappeared, three years ago. Okay, thank you they for putting. Finally, in, yeah. Okay, thank you for putting. to them. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, I guess better late than never, but uh, still, um, Detective does not impress me with his uh, intuitiveness at all. Okay, all right. Um, Let's talk about – and we're going to get to the money again and and some other things. But let's talk about uh, this guy. His name is Alan Boyle. Who is he, and why is he relevant in Andy's case? Um, On Andy's Facebook page – Um, I received an email. um, I believe it was in 2018. I was promoting one of a a missing events that we had going on for Brian Schaefer. And uh, this gentleman, Alan, commented on one of the posts that said, "Um, I don't care about Brian. I just want to know what happened to Andy. So um, I sent him an email through Andy's Facebook page and and just said, you know, hey, what's going, you know, how do we know how do we know you? How did you know Andy? And so Alan stated that um they went to high school together. He went to Reynoldsburg. Um I actually had to pull out a yearbook cuz he's 2 years 2 years older than me. I had to pull out a yearbook so I could remember what he looked like. But he emailed and he said that um in 2000 and this is what Alan said in his email that they that he was a uh, cab driver. And that he picked up Andy and two guys on campus in 2008. Um, Alan stated that Andy immediately recognized him from high school and that they chatted. I asked Alan what their conversation was. Alan stated that nothing seemed out of the usual. They didn't really talk about much. He dropped Andy and the two guys off in the arena district. Now, the, the distance between OSU campus and the arena district, probably about five miles. Um, so that's how he contacted, he contacted me through Facebook. So I said, I immediately said, thank you for this information. Will you please talk to our detective? Anybody that gives me any information, I immediately, same with Jeremy. Um, as soon as he contacted me on Facebook, I said, please talk to the detective. I gave the detective's information. So I immediately sent the information over to our detective and detective Perry did reach out, um, to Alan and um and he stated that he did contact her um mm-hmm. let me see here when i asked her what the conversation was um she said that she can't give out any information on the case and that all leads have been followed um and that there had not had been any, had not been any new leads and that was it that was all the information she could give me about the conversation that she had with uh with alan Okay. When was the last time you spoke to Alan? 
just through that email. That was the only time I ever spoke with him. Yeah, it was March in 2018 was the only time that I had any conversation with him. And now also in his email that he that he relayed to me was that he had um, a, I think it was his father that was mm-hmm. missing. Yes, that's um, true. Yes. Yeah, that his father was missing, and so he understood, um, you know, what we were going through, and that he didn't know Andy was missing. You know, again, we didn't get publicity for Andy until 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, this is what the, the email said. I'm telling you, I drove Acme Taxi. I picked Andy up. Um, he had two guys with him. I dropped him off in the arena district. That was in 2008, right before I went to get my CDL. He never said anything about not being wanted to be found, didn't know if it helped since he was just in and out of my cab. So he also said that, you know, he had a family member or his dad disappeared and he stumbled on him 15, 15 years later. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the only communication that I had with him. He was two years older than me. He graduated with Andy. So I didn't know him at all when we went to high school. Okay. Did Alan ever say what the context of this conversation was did Andy ever say who these other two guys were that were with him I mean they had five miles let's say eight minutes to kind of cover some time being that they hadn't seen each other in a while were any of those topics covered in the conversation no and that's what I asked him and and he this is what his email says he says they flagged me down on the high street area I dropped him off in the arena district him and two other dudes I said, do you remember anything that he was saying or what he was, uh, anything he'd been up to? Um, he said, no, they were just talking back and forth. He said, catch you later. And that was it. I didn't know anything about his situation till now. And that's what his email said. So even when you started publicizing this in 2015, Alan is saying that he did not know about the disappearance until 2018? Right. till he saw the Facebook page. Correct. I think the listeners know how I feel about sightings that happened so many years or even a couple years after the fact. And, you know, my problem with this sighting is that it doesn't seem like the normal kind of conversation two people would have after not seeing each other for many, many years. You know, usually they catch up even if they only have eight minutes and it doesn't seem that they did that. Exactly. If you haven't seen somebody in 10 years and you know, you've got you know, 10 minutes in the cab where, you know, oh, this happened and this happened. Oh, and I yep. married, had kids, you know, any, anything, anything yep. that you has been going on. And, and so, yeah, it is, it is very odd, but he spoke to the detective. I immediately sent his information to the detective and, yep. and she spoke to him and said there was nothing of value. So I, I kind of have to go off of well, I agree. I would agree with that. And maybe the reason there's nothing of value is maybe because the sighting didn't happen. And I, I as you know, I am leaning in that direction for many different reasons. But OK, right. so this is a sighting of uh, Andy a couple years uh, after the fact. Uh, Andy was declared deceased in, deceased in 2013. Why? The reason that the family did that was his name was still on the deed of the home. And so in order for Rochelle um, to refinance and take his name off, um, and the divorce, he signed over all rights to the home. But at that time, Rochelle wasn't able to refinance because of their financial situation and take Andy's name off of it. Um, and she also has a son that went five years without you know, any financial help, any child support. You know, it's, it's 
no child support, nothing. And so um, we decided to um, declare him deceased so that that way Rochelle could refinance the home um, and remove his name and then also see if we would be able to get survivor benefits for his son, Drew. Um, so my dad filed that um, in the courts and it was approved. Um, Rochelle was able to refinance the home and take his, his name off of it. Um, and then we tried to apply for benefits for his son. Um, he wasn't able to get anything from Social Security because Andy works for the state. You, you pay into a private pension. So he would have to take it out of his OPER. You know, he'd have to get disability benefit. Excuse me. He'd have to get survivor benefits from his retirement, and he took all of that out. So there was there was no there was no benefits that could help out with his son. So that was the reason that he was declared deceased because it it was paperwork issues. Um, that Correct. doesn't that, that doesn't necessarily mean that Andy is deceased. Correct. And we made sure with the detective at that time, that the, which was Detective Lyles, mm-hmm. um, that, that the case would not be closed. My mother was adamant to make sure that the case would not be closed as a missing person if we did this. And our detective guaranteed us that his case would not be closed. They would still be working on it. It was merely for, like you said, paperwork reasons. To be able to, you know, Rochelle is a single mom, and and she needed she needed help with with you know raising Drew, and right. we needed to see if there's any benefits available, and so yes, okay. Not that we believe that he is deceased, it just for paperwork. Okay. Now we have to also talk about this money. Uh, Andy, of course, took this twenty five thousand dollars out. We know where at least about half of it went toward the purchasing of the Explorer and maybe for the registr- the registering of it, et cetera, getting the title. But that would leave twelve, thirteen thousand dollars left. Have you ever been able to track that money down? No. Not at all. We um one of the paperworks that Rochelle received back in two thousand and six was a bank account for KeyBank. That was in November of oh six. Um the detective was able to subpoena that account. Um, she said there, Detective Perry said there was nothing of value, a couple of fees on there. Um, the starter checks were actually mailed to his old address, to, to his ex-wife's house. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that he had um, another credit union account, um, but we have been waiting for five years for them to be able to pull the records. <clears throat> five um, years. We, Five years. Okay. Um, we've also been waiting five years for the um, OPERS records. Um, you know, Andy received a twenty-five thousand dollars check. Well, you have to deposit that somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. no bank is mm-hmm. going to cash that. So we we figured if we could get the records from OPERS of where he deposited that check, then we would be able to subpoena that bank and find out. We have been waiting since two thousand and fifteen for them to get those subpoenas put over, um, and then. So we don't know where he deposited that money. Mm. We don't know, you know, what happened. What would happen with it? We have no idea. Um, we are, and we've also been waiting since 2015 for them to subpoena the other credit union um, that we believe he had an account with. And every time I try to get information from the detective, this is her response. I know this is frustrating, but I have not time, had time to call. My work hours changed. 
let me ask my sergeant how she wants to handle getting this done. I mean, th- this is what I get every time I ask. What, what are you getting done with this? Is this Have you re- got the subpoena? Have you gotten this sent over? I get excuse mm. after excuse after excuse. Do you have any idea how he paid for that vehicle? We know the money, but and we've already talked about this, but I want to uh, make sure the listeners realize that you and I have talked about this. But he couldn't have just walked into the place where he bought the Explorer and given them cash, okay, for several different reasons, a lot of laws and everything else. But uh, these starter checks that were sent to Rochelle's house, are we then to believe that he did not use one of these starter checks as a way to pay for the vehicle? That is correct. Um, Key Bank was the one account that we knew about, and she was, and our detective Perry was able to get information on that bank, and she stated nothing of value. Um, there was a couple of fees on there, small fees, you know, twenty five, thirty dollars, but nothing of value. And and it wasn't until you and I talked previous that right. of of even thinking to contact the car dealership mm-hmm. to find out how he purchased this car. Mm-hmm. And that's why this is so great that we're doing this is because, you know, yeah. when we have all these people that have worked on cases before, you think of things that we never would have thought. That's never why we're here. To, yeah. That's what, that's what we never, do. Yes. We never thought to contact, you know, the car dealership yeah. and say, well, you know, where it was the check that was written. So, so now, now we as a family are, we've, we've filed to open an estate in his name in the probate court. And we are now trying to get these documents. We're done waiting on the police. We've, we're opening an estate in his name. And in that way I have legal right to contact OPERS. I have legal right to contact the car dealership because if we can find out, like you said, where, where these, how did he pay for that car? He wrote a check. He had to. If he can't walk into a car dealership with $12,000. No, well, as you know, and the listeners should know, I think at least some of the listeners know, the reason I have knowledge of this is because my family was in the car business for over 60 years. I actually worked for them uh, back in the in the mid-1990s. And I know that a reputable dealerships, and we're not going to say the, the name of the dealership, but it is a very reputable company in the area. Some fly-by-night used car place might accept $12,000 in cash, okay? A reputable dealership is not going to do that because they're going to have to fill out all sorts of paperwork, and it's going to trigger things with the IRS and the FBI because um, anything over $10,000 is deposited in cash. They start getting suspicious, et cetera, all right? And they start worrying that it might be drug money, it might be this, it might be that, terrorism. They just don't know. So they like to get money orders, bank checks, you know, personal checks, et cetera. And so Andy had to have converted, put that $25,000 somewhere. Correct. To, you know, and once again, my perception is also that he gets this money from the state of Ohio. It's going to come in the form of a check. They're not going to give him cash. Of course, they're not going to give him cash. It's not like he's going to have had $25,000 sitting at that last place you know, where he lived. So the money went somewhere. Correct. And that's and, what we've been trying yeah, to find. Right. And you know, the state of Ohio might even be able to tell you uh, where that check was cashed. And that's what we've been trying to do with, with uh, the Ohio uh, – uh, OPERS. OPERS, yes. I've, yes, I've contacted okay. them numerous times. And so what yeah. they said is that they keep the records um, for seven years, and then they yeah. transfer them over to the state treasury. 
And mm-hmm. so um, I give all that information to the detective um, so that she could get information from the state treasury. And then that didn't happen. So I called OPERS again. And then that's when they said, you need to, you know, who's his next of kin? You need to have an estate open in his name to get this information. Um, but yeah, we need to find out where did he deposit that check? You know, there's a record okay. for everything. And then that way, if we can find out, and then, you know, the new information that you brought up of, you know, contact mm-hmm. the car dealership never even yes. crossed our mind. And so now we're going to, we're going to subpoena their records to find out where was that check written from that he, that he bought for this car. It is a very reputable car dealership. Yeah. And so I, yeah, yeah I, I can't see them taking that amount of money. Right. And now, Mike, now, like I said earlier, Andy was not shy about getting this money. Everybody yeah. that he was running around with knew that he was waiting on $25,000. I just want to make that very clear. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, he was living with him that summer. He knew that he, Andy was waiting on this money. The, his whole circle of friends knew that he was waiting on this money, that, that $25,000 was coming to him. Well, that certainly would be maybe a motive for somebody wanting to make him disappear. The question, though, still is uh, how did he convert that check that he got into cash? Because that would be the only way that somebody would have the motive to make him disappear is if they could get their hands on the cash, not that they could get their hands on the bank account. And that is what we have been waiting five years for the police department to do something and get the subpoena, and we're not waiting anymore. We're not waiting. (laughs) And listeners should also know that uh, my perception is, once again, having worked in the car business, even though it seems like a lifetime ago and it, you know, twenty some years ago, is that I can remember in my family's company, you know, going through sales records that were ten, twelve, fifteen years old, even going back to like nineteen eighty or something like that. So it would not be unusual for a dealership, especially in these days of computers, they still have records like that because exactly. because uh, anytime they get checks. Uh, or money orders, something like that. They do make copies of it. They run a, you know, run a copy to put in with the bill of sale, et cetera. Exactly, and that's oh. where we're hoping we can get that information from them. Very exactly. good. Very good. Okay. You know, I, I guess what we're also saying here, and this leads us into kind of the final part of this interview, is that this seems like there's still a lot to do after 13 years, Amy. There is there, you know, I'm looking at all the things that we have done, you know, with this mm. case. Um, but, mm. you know, really, really everything kind of broke with this case in 2015. And that was the first time that we received, you know, news coverage. And for a very long time, our family was, was divided on this. Uh, you know, the females really felt the, the females on the, in the family really felt like he was missing. Something was wrong. This is not like mm. him. He's, he would not, the males on in, in our family mm-hmm. um, were he doesn't want to be found. He left for mm-hmm. a reason. So we were really divide. I mean, it really it divided this family. I bet it, immensely. Yes. It, it was it was it was so hard to talk about. And and so in 2015 is when it broke the glass ceiling of our family. Um, it was a Saturday morning. And I was up with my boyfriend. He was getting ready to leave for work. We're watching the news at six o'clock. And it says, coming up next, missing person, Andy Chapman. Wow. And I I had no idea it was going to be on the news. I'm freaking out. I called everybody in my family. Of course, at six o'clock in the morning on Saturday, nobody answered. Only person to answer was my brother, Mark. So Mm -hmm. I just turned on the news. We watched the news together and just cried. And that is when everything with his case just came wide open. 
And that's when we just, everything started moving. We, you know, we did a lot more with the case. We did a age progression um, picture. We hired a forensic artist out of Arizona. Um, she did an age progression so that way we could kind of show, you know, we passed out flyers. And that was what we got a lot when we passed out flyers was, oh, does he look like this now? And we're like, oh, well, no. You know, so we, we paid and did an age progression. We did the Facebook page. We're now, we're now doing, um, you know, more events. We're, you know, connecting with more fans. We're doing a lot more on the case. But like you said, there is still so much that needs to be done. Um, and, and we're just trying to get it all together. And, and, and most of this information that you and I are talking about, you know, is information that we've just found out within the past four years, four or five years. Which is amazing so, to me because the information that you sent me several weeks ago now is some of the most complete information I think I've ever gotten in any case that I've ever covered. And to believe that you were able to amass it and organize it and everything but didn't really start doing it till the last few years is really amazing. I got to give you credit on that. I mean, every the timeline of events and all of these things and addresses and, and everything else you've put together, it would seem like you've been doing this since day one, but it's that's not the case. You were, you've been able to no. go back and put it all together, just kind of cobble it together within the last few years. Yes, yes. And we've had we've had – in this past couple of years, we've met, you know, victim advocates that we've been working with and missing in Ohio, and she's helped us. And then we had a family friend step forward who's, you know, who put the timeline together and, and kind of got everything organized for us. And, 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 you know, in 2015, that's really, I really believe that that's when the family unit mm-hmm. was able to accept he was actually missing. For so long, we just kept waiting for him to come back. We just figured he would come back. Um, Andy was really close to his uncle, his uncle Max. Um, he passed away in 2008. We thought for sure, you know, Andy would reemerge. So we just kept believing that, you know, he was just using and, and, you know, couldn't be around the family and that he would have, you know, he would eventually emerge. He would eventually come back. He would eventually. And, and so in 2015, when that happened on the news, it was like, okay, this is, this is, this is real. This is re- He is truly, there's something going on. We've ran his social and that's when, and we ran his social to see if we, you know, he's used his social anywhere in the United States um, his social the only hit has been when we declared him to cease. So that means in you know 13 years he's never applied for a job. He's never mm-hmm. filed taxes. He's never anything, nothing. There's no record of him for 13 years. We checked his son's social security number, thinking maybe he was using somebody else's. There's nothing on his son's. We checked other family members' socials to see if maybe he was using that, and there's nothing. Now you know I work for Job and Family Services, and so you know I know some of what happens when this, you know, addictions happen. I mean, you can go, you know, years living on the streets and do it. You know, we have a lot of, I have a lot of clients to do the day, you know, the day pays, you know, like work today, mm-hmm. pay today kind of thing. So theoretically, yeah. you know, that could last for a while, but 13 years, yeah. to never, ever, ever, not a, anything, nothing. Yeah. So that's kind of just what leads us to the, the pit at the bottom of our stomach of, of just, what is going, you know, I, I just, so, so there is, there's a lot to do. We're still, you know, every day we work on it every day. We're, you know, posting stuff on Facebook and, you know, doing these events and getting news coverage. And, you know, in the past four years, we've been on the news, I think six or seven times now, which is phenomenal. Um, one of the things the detective said to me that really just, 
that rings with me is that Annie has such a recognizable face call and she gets calls all the time on other cases. You know, I think I saw so-and-so over here all the time. She said they don't ever get calls on Annie ever. And she just finds that just so bizarre because she gets calls on almost every other case. So, Mm. yeah. Interesting. I was going to ask you, uh, let me think about this question here for uh, a moment. Uh, let's let's talk about the landlord. Uh, maybe this we can tie this all together. Um, you know, another piece of information here is that it should be known, and this kind of ties back to what Andy allegedly said to Paul and Doug that he was headed to Florida, is actually that Andy's former landlord, this Raquel, she ended up moving to Florida. Yes. Yeah. And we and we ended up, or I ended up finding her, and maybe you're in the process of trying to contact her. Um, yeah. We don't, we're not sure if that's a coincidence, or maybe Andy was thinking he was going to move to Florida when she went to Florida. Uh, we just don't know, do we? No, we don't know that connection. We don't know if if Raquel was just a landlord and mm. that was their only relationship, or if she was a family friend and mm. was letting them stay there. Um, no, we don't, I'm in the process of getting a hold of her. Um, we, and that, and that's also something is that, that, you know, I've asked the detective several times over numerous years, can I contact all these people? Mm -hmm. You know, I want to talk to, I want to talk to Doug and Jen. I want to talk to Paul and uh, and I want to talk to Raquel and I want to talk to all these people to find out, you know, more information. And every time I ask the detective, if I can do that, she says no. They, the detectives, all say no. They say, you know, that this could put our family in danger. This could, this could affect the court case if there's any, you know, court proceedings. Um, you know, please don't do that. And so, like we've been doing for 13 years, we just, we yeah, wait, well, that's all crazy. Wait. That's completely yeah. crazy. I can understand it, as the listeners know. I understand that, like within the first year, maybe in the first couple years. 13 years later, uh, you know, police have had their chance. Not that you don't want their help or anything, but if you can't talk to Andy's former landlord, then how can you talk to anybody? You know, it's not, it's not like anybody considers her a suspect or anything, but it would be nice if she could give more insight into what did happen with this moving out because nobody seems to know. No, exactly. Nobody seems to know. Okay. So we're just not sure. She ended up moving to Florida. Andy said that he was going to take a trip to Florida, but the problem is is that Raquel is of African American descent and what the the Doug and Paul said was that that he was with uh, a white blonde woman. So that Correct. would seem to um dispute that. So I just I don't know there. Uh I do have to ask uh, one more thing. How did that new story end up getting on TV in the first place in 2015? Um, Detective Perry, what what she used to do was every Saturday um, they would do, um, on Channel 10, they would do a missing person case. And so she chose Andy that week um, and didn't notify any of us <laughs> that it was going to be on TV. I laugh. It, it just it is just one thing after the other with with the, the police department. So we had no idea this was going to be aired at all. And so she picked Andy to be on that week. Now, had my boyfriend not had to work on Saturday morning, I wouldn't have been up. I would not have seen it. Nobody would have known it would have been on. And that's, and so when that aired, we ended up 
scheduling an appointment to meet with her immediately after. So his story aired on May 30th, 2015. Um, I think I sent you a link to that. And then Mm -hmm. in June of 2015, we, a month later, not even two weeks later, we as a family went and met with Detective Perry and sat down with her and whatever Andy's case and everything. So she, yeah. Okay. I had no idea it was going to be aired. All right. Well, I guess that was just a good happenstance then. Yes. That the detective yes. actually did something of quality, even though he didn't end up telling you that he did it, and you would have missed it otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. Yeah. So, it, but it kind of brought your family together um, to put you on a mission. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Speaking of that, how's your hand, uh, family handled all this? I, it does sound to me that you were very divided. And maybe there might have even been some arguments and things that went on over the years about what should be done. But emotionally, you know, what have the last 13 years been like? Man, I just, you can't even put it into words of what it's like. You know, when somebody's missing, you know, every day there's that possibility that they're going to show up. Um, you know, when I'm, you know, for for instance, when I'm down in Columbus or when I'm anywhere and I see a homeless person, you know, we took a little trip to Niagara Falls. I saw some homeless people. You know, I looked at them just to just to kind of see, you know, maybe you just every day you you just expect that phone call of, you know, we found him, he's here. Um, but then also the trauma of, you know, every time that they find a body. You know, yeah. I'm glued. I'm glued to the TV. Uh, like two months ago, they found five bodies in Ohio within one week. Within one week, they found five different bodies in Ohio, and the stress that that takes. Every time there's a body found, I know that that the detective will get a hold of me if it if it has anything to do with Andy. They have his DNA. They have his dental. They have everything. But I still email her. Have you heard anything about this? You know, and you just. The, at the beginning, the family was so divided about it. Um, you know, the women were just very emotional. He's missing. You know, watching. You know, my nephew, who's now 16, going on 17, watching him and what he's dealt with. You know, not having a father. Um, you know, in the beginning, his son really felt like his dad had abandoned him, and he yeah. had you know issues with that. Sure. Um, and in 2015, when that story was aired and, and Drew was finally able to see, you know, what was going on and he was old enough to understand it, um, you know, he, he was able to realize my dad's not missing, you know, or my dad didn't abandon me. He's missing. You know, it, it's not like he chose to, to abandon me. And so it's been healing for him. He's now been able to come to some of the events that we've had. And, and you know, the family has really stepped up with Rochelle. Um, we're still really involved with Rochelle. She you know, was at my house last weekend and, you know, we're still, mm-hmm. she's, she's been phenomenal in this in raising Drew, you know, by herself, but also keeping our family very involved in everything. And, um, you know, my parents help when they can financially with her, you know, and, and helping with Drew out. And, and so some of the family members still can't deal with it. There's some of the family members that, that are unable to talk about it or unable to participate um, whether it's too painful, whether it's just something that they can't handle, and then other the family members are completely involved. Um, and so 
it's just, it's an everyday thing. It's something that you think about every single day. Every single day you think, is this the day we're going to find something out? Is this the day that he's going to call? Is this the day he's going to show up at the front door? Is this the day, you know, or the body's found? Oh my gosh, could this be, you know, Andy? It's just, it's unbelievably emotional. Yeah. Unbelievably. Right. Unbelievably. There's no closure. There's always hope. There's always, yeah. There's always that hope. And you never know when that day is going to be. Yeah, exactly. And Drew, you know, with Drew and my son, Elliot, since they're so close in age, they're, I think they're 10 months apart. You know, those two are peas and carrots. <laughs> and so <laughs> I have Drew, I have Drew over here, you know, quite a bit, um, you know, and so, and I think that's the, the good thing about, you know, was Rochelle is that she, you know, she could have very easily been like, you know, I, I know I'm going to take care of the son and she is not at all. She has, you know, is never once. Um, felt like our family has done something, you know, at the beginning, she felt like we knew where Andy was and hmm. she knew, she, she felt like the, you know, we were hiding him, huh. doing something. And, you know, that, that obviously, you know, was, was proved to be false. So she just, she just didn't know what was going on. You know, I remember her telling me that she had to tell Drew that, you know, if daddy shows up, I know you're going to be excited to see him. You know, but don't don't run to him. Come get mommy first, and then we'll go see him. Because she was afraid that you know Andy might try and take him. I mean, wow. come and take him. I mean, at the beginning of this, wow. we had no idea any. You know, there was just so many things running through your mind at the beginning of this, and so you know, yeah. there's some days that I just I can't I can't log on. I can't. Some days my mom can't talk about it. I mean, my mom has called me numerous times. You know. I had a dream. I saw Andy. I, you know, it just, it just watching her. Oh, and it just, I can't even, I can't even put it into words. That's about the best, yeah. the best that I can say it. That's the best I can yeah. say it. It's just, it's torture. You know, he was such a big part of our lives and he's missing out on so much. He's missing out on nieces and nephews. He's missing out on birthdays and graduations. And my son deserves to know his uncle Andy and, you know, I keep his spirit alive. I have pictures up of him. I talk about stories all the time. Oh my gosh, your uncle Andy, you know, <laughs> he used to say this or he used to do this or it just, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know. Right. It's torture. It is. It's the best way it to is. put it. It's it absolute is. torture. It is. It is. <clears throat> You express, uh, and I know that you're very involved with other missing persons families in Ohio, and so you know that they've experienced a lot of the same things. You know that you, the, what you're expressing on here uh, is felt by all the families that I've talked to as well. You know, across the United States, a lot of not knowing, a lot of not what to expect from day to day, um, not knowing if your loved one is um, living or deceased. Don't know if uh, they were murdered or they committed suicide or maybe they just ran off. And, or, you know, it just so many question marks. And yes. it, that can really wear on you uh, after a while, for sure. Yes. For sure. Yes, 100%. And, you know, recently with getting involved in all these missing persons events, it's, you know, it's kind of been therapeutic because we've, we've 
built these bonds with these other families, you know, with Carla Lowsley's family, you know, with, with her mom, Pam and, and her, you know, her sister, Mandy, you know, we're close to them now. And, and, you know, Tyler Davis, who went missing, you know, in February, mm-hmm. you know, we're close to his wife now. And, and so even though it's gut wrenching to go to these events, because you see all these people just suffering, but it's like, you finally have somebody who knows what you're going through. You know, you, it's that old saying, unless you go through it, you have no idea what somebody else is going through. It's yeah. so, it's 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 been healing to have these different families that we can connect with and 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 do these things and every time you do an event every time you pass out a flyer every time i post something on facebook i i feel like i'm doing something i owe it to him i owe it to my brother the best way i could express it to you is i owe it to my brother to find him you know if i went missing today Mm-hmm. I would expect my family to do the same thing. And, you know, I joke about it. It's just like, you know, if he decided to go live on a hippie farm in, in you know, Colorado or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. that's fine. It just, just, we just need to know that. Yeah. One or the, you know, just something. It just, the not knowing, like you said, and, and it's gut-wrenching. Yeah. Do you have a Facebook page? You have mentioned it, but let's talk about it now. Uh, you've set up a Facebook page for Andy. Why don't you tell the listeners about it right now? Um, it's called Help Find Andy Chapman. Um, I started it probably, I think it was like four years ago. Um, I'm not real tech savvy, so I, can, I, so I do as much as I can on it. We've We've posted flyers. Uh, we also post information on other um, missing cases. Uh, we also post information on upcoming events. And then I try to just, you know, put uh, pictures of Andy on there, not just on his missing person flyer, but just, you know, of him, how he was with his family, with his son, with his brothers, um, you know, and just so you can kind of see that other side of of what Andy was like before this addiction took over. And and so I'm just getting his face out there. We put um, his age progression pictures. We have those up there. Um, so just trying to get as much, as much information out there as we can. I think I have like 800 followers right now. So I think that that's good, but you know, we've gotten a couple, you know, like I said, we got Jeremy who contacted me through the mm-hmm. Facebook. We got the other gentleman, Alan. Um, we had one other person um, who saw that they saw Andy. Um, if I can paraphrase my friend who moved to California, he posted Andy's picture. Well, then that gentleman's friend was a truck driver and um, was in Arizona and, um, found, and was pulled over for gas or something and, and saw this speed up kid. Um, he took a picture of him and, and this, this kid said, oh, this is what he, he said. He was a kid, but he was probably in his, his late, late twenties. Um, didn't catch his name, but he said he was on his way to Ohio for a, a very important event. Um, so we, we got information on that. I gave all that information and the picture to the detective and also to the um, forensic artist that did Andy's age progression picture. It turned out it wasn't a match. And, but that's just kind of been the, you know, the part that's been wonderful to me is that, it, you know, it's getting out there. Somebody yeah. in California saw that yeah. Somebody in Arizona, somebody, I had somebody from England whose name was Andy Chapman. He emailed me and, and said, I just, you know, I was searching my name and I stumbled upon this and, you know, I'm going to share it. And, you know, and he shared the post over in England. And so, you know, it's, that's mm-hmm. just my hope is that somebody, yeah. anybody, you know, will see something or anything, anything. 
Any last words before we complete this interview, Amy? I don't. I don't know, Ed. I really don't. It's been. It's been an emotional two and a half hours, and that's, mm-hmm. that's really. Okay. You know, just is just you know just. I'm begging mm-hmm. anybody. I'm begging anybody that knows anything that has seen him, any of that family that last saw him. You know, just just any information. That's my only hope right now is just any information that that we can we can possibly find him, bring him home. Yeah. And just prayers, prayers for the family and prayers for his son. And I want to uh, continue to help you. I think that uh, us talking some of these things out, as you've even stated in the interview, you know, I was able to give you a couple ideas about other things that you, you can do. And I want to keep uh, talking to you about that. Okay. Yes, so let's, uh, you know, so let's, much. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. And I want to continue to, you know, keep brainstorming. And I think there's maybe still some, still some other things that can be done on your own, not waiting around for the police that you can do, uh, you know, contacting people and thinking about things. And uh, maybe we can continue to come up with some new avenues of inquiry. That would be wonderful. Anything right now, you know, we're, we're open and willing to any suggestions, you know, like you said, okay. the the car dealership, it never dawned mm-hmm. on us to contact them. We were so focused on the O-Purse, so focused yeah. on that, that it just, and so all these ideas that you're coming up with are just, you know, fantastic. We cannot thank okay. you enough. Well, you're very welcome. And I thank you for being on this episode of Unfound. Okay. Thank you so much, Ed. You're welcome. And that was my interview with Amy Chapman, sister of Andy Chapman. I thank her for joining all of you and me on this episode. I also got to speak with Andy's mother, Judy. And these are some of my notes from that conversation. The call that Andy made to his mother, Judy, only lasted a minute. When he said that he had something to give her, Judy had no idea what that meant. And to this day... She has no idea what that meant. In fact, I gave her some examples maybe from my own life of if I called my mother saying something I had to give to her, it would be like a present, a gift, um, something that was special, something like that. And Judy had still has no idea what he was talking about because he did not possess anything that was that valuable unless you consider his car to be valuable or possibly the rest of the money. Uh, that we talked about the rest of that $25,000. Like I said, the call was only a minute. He sounded very anxious and urgent and wanted her to be there uh, at that moment. And he sounded a little disgusted that she couldn't uh, make it there because she was sick. And that was the only reason. There was nothing else that they talked about during that conversation, and that's why that conversation was uh, so short. Um, to this day, once again, Judy has no idea what he meant by that. And it very well could be that there was something that he had to give to her, or it could have been that this was just Andy's addiction talking. We have no idea. Judy had no contact with Andy after that phone call the couple days before she showed up at the house that he was renting. Um, she was actually surprised. She said that she was actually surprised 
that Andy didn't call her after that day that he called her. He, she was surprised that he didn't call like the next day to ask to see if she was going to come over or even the day that she showed up. Uh, she did admit that uh, she just showed up unannounced at that house. She did not call ahead to tell Andy that she was going to be there. Uh, the way Judy uh, explained it, that when she got there, before she could even get to the front door of the place where Andy and his two roommates lived, the neighbor came out and said that they were gone. Um, did not give a specific date. He didn't say it was the day before or two days before, like the day that that Andy had called her. But he said, the neighbor said that uh, they were already gone. I just found it a little odd. Was this guy like watching the, the driveway or something that he was out there before uh, she even got to the front door? That still seems a little odd to me. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe it's just weird timing. Um, she says that Judy says that she can't remember if she tried calling Andy or not after she showed up to the house and found that that it was empty. I'm going to guess that she probably did, but she could not specifically remember that. And we have to remember that this was uh, 13 years ago. She didn't know what to think when she got there and, and it was all cleaned out. Uh, she was frankly shocked. Shocked was a word uh, that she used. The last time that she had seen Andy was in person was on November 24th, which uh, was on or around his birthday. They met for dinner. He was jumpy and nervous. But at that dinner, despite it being approximately two weeks before he moved out, he had said nothing. He said nothing about a foreclosure on that property or moving out or anything like that. To, I guess to Judy's knowledge, uh, her impression was that he would be living where he was living for the foreseeable future. So... um. It does raise a question in my mind, and being that you heard this in the interview, if Andy said nothing to his mother about getting prepared to move, then why is it when he bought this car, why was the title sent to his ex-wife's address? I don't, I don't know. That seems weird to me. That, I have to be frank with you. That seems like the last place that you would send a car title if you were... Uh, to your ex-wife's house, especially if you're the one who bought the car with your own money, because once she has the title, she could maybe sell the car herself if she wanted to. I, I realize that his name would be on the title, but she has it, and who knows what kind of complications that might bring. Why did he not just give the address of where he was staying, of course, the house that where he was renting and the house that that uh, got foreclosed on. I can't answer that. That seems weird. Um, Judy did say that she got to meet Andy's roommates because she had been over there before, didn't think much of them one way or the other. Judy says that she didn't get worried until a few weeks later after not hearing from Andy. It took a little while because... He was known to go out of communication for a little bit. Of course, we hear that a lot in cases where the missing person had some type of addiction. But she really didn't start worrying, I, I don't think, until the end of 2006 into 2007. 
She didn't do much, though. After talking to the police uh, and, and going down there, remember, she was the one who uh, filed the missing persons report. She didn't do much because the police told her that the people that were around Andy were dangerous. That's what she was told. Those roommates and whoever else. And at the time, once she heard that, of course, she thought that then something bad had happened. And she has no idea where the two roommates went after they moved out. After the, the three of them moved out, she has no idea uh, where they went. And, I, I, of course, Amy doesn't. And I think that that's a very important part of this uh, case to find out where those roommates did go. Judy and I also talked about the sighting by Alan Boyle. And I had to be truthful with her, and I told her that I doubted it simply because this conversation that Alan allegedly had with Andy had no context. It didn't sound like a real conversation that two people would have if they haven't, hadn't seen each other in a long time. And I gave her an example from my uh, own personal experience. So those were the notes that I took. Um, we talked, like I said, for not quite an hour and a half. I gave her a lot of suggestions and things that I, of course, cannot talk about on this episode. But those were the those were the points that she remembered, what she experienced back in 2006, having been the one who went over to the house and uh, found it to be empty. And I appreciate Judy giving me some of her time this past Saturday. So what happened to Andy Chapman? And here are some points that caught my attention in addition to what I've already stated in my discussion with Judy. I can't understand why Andy didn't mention he was moving to his mother the day he called her, the day that he told her to come over and pick something up. Yes, maybe Andy was high and paranoid and there was nothing to pick up. Of course, we can't dismiss that. But surely at that point, he knew he was moving. But Andy said nothing, not a word. I also can't believe that Andy and the roommates simply went along with Raquel's demands that they move out without her giving them ample notice, like 30 days at least. Any landlord will tell you, renters have a distinct advantage over property owners in these types of situations. A landlord just can't kick someone out with only a day's notice. I guess what I'm saying here is that Andy probably knew for 30 days at least that he was going to have to go elsewhere. Meaning, if we accept that the move-out date was December 6th, he had to have known since November 6th. And what even seems weirder to me about that is that what kind of renter moves out like on December 6th? My perception is when people move out, they move out at the, the end slash beginning of the month. So November 30th or December 1st. Who moves out on December 6th? It just seems a little weird to me. As for Andy's vehicle, the mileage is surely a problem. Those people weren't storing it because Andy hadn't paid his bill yet. They were driving it as if it was their own. And not just driving it, but driving it seemingly everywhere they went, if the mileage is correct. That looks bad for them. Yet they may say, hey, he said he was going to Florida and said we could drive it until he returned. And when he didn't, we took it as payment and the storage fees. Then there's the money. Where is it? Of everything in this case, this is probably the biggest motive for someone to have wanted to kill Andy Chapman. 
yet there's no proof the money is missing. It could be in an account that hasn't been found yet. And on top of everything else, Andy could have overdosed all on his own after he dropped off his car. So conceivably, there could be no crime, or at least very little of one in this case. And it could be that there was no violation regarding him moving at all. I'll leave the rest of the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.